Hello, everybody. It's me, your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ, and you're listening to another episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast. And if you're like me, you are definitely over the rainbow. Okay. Before I give anything else away about what this week's fantastic episode is all about, let me introduce my munchkin of a co-host, the one, the only, it's Michael Verratti. Despite that comment, I will say that I'm very <laughs> thrilled, as always, to ease on down the road with you, Peaches. That comment is more of an insult to me than it is to you, because the reality of it is, the only reason you look like a munchkin is because you're standing next to me. Oh, God! <laughs> okay, well, before this devolves... I mean, I'm fat. That's what I'm saying. You're not fat. I mean, but I'm big. I'm large. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Let's uh, let's move on before I, I, I keep falling into before a trap. Before I drop a house on you. <laughs> anyway, yes. All of these Oz illusions are, of course, because we are talking about 1978's The Wiz, directed by Sidney Lumet and starring Diana Ross, Michael Jackson, Nipsey Russell, Lena Horne, Mabel King, Richard Pryor, Ted Ross, and many, many wonderful citizens of Oz. Yeah, that's right. And um, this is a movie that Michael knows. It's been on our list since the beginning, since the first season of Midnight Mass, when we started uh, scratching out ideas for potential podcasts. And the issue we had wasn't that we didn't want to cover this film. We always wanted to. It's one of my favorite films. And we have had a blast rediscovering it. But we wanted really great guests. You know, people who really had a connection to this film. And we were able to line up, I think, two of the best guests we ever could have hoped for. I absolutely agree. I think that what's interesting about The Wiz, for folks who know, obviously this movie was inspired and based upon a Tony Award-winning musical that came out four years prior to the release of the film. But even though The Wiz is, in its way, a version of the telling of The Wizard of Oz... The way it tackles the themes and the way it interprets the story are totally different. I think finding the right people to talk about this movie with was absolutely crucial because The Wiz exists in this space in the pop culture canon as being in some ways dependent on our knowledge of The Wizard of Oz. But for the folks who love this movie including you and I, it's so much more than just a different version of a story that we already know. It takes those themes and pushes them into new bold places. And we knew that we wanted to dig into the significance of that and what that means for fans, but also for different communities. I'm so glad that you bring that up because it was this episode that really showed me how much more The Wiz had influenced me as a kid than I realized. And um, I remember growing up and I was obsessed with the 1939 film, The Wizard of Oz. Like it came on television when we were kids once a year and it was an epic event. And I would look so forward to watching The Wizard of Oz, you know, on TV every year and I loved I mean, Margaret Hamilton as the Wicked Witch. Like, that was an obsession, an early obsession of mine. And I never stopped loving, I still love The Wizard of Oz. I love that movie. I think it's just fantastic. Well, 
I remember later seeing Return to Oz, which I didn't connect with as much for whatever reason. It was really scary and lovely, but it didn't quite grab me with the magic that The Wizard of Oz did. And then, like, later, I, I somehow watched The Wiz, I think also on TV, and I didn't totally, you know, I was young. I didn't totally get its significance at the time. I just knew that I loved it. I loved the music, I loved the story. I was already a fan of Michael Jackson's as a kid, you know, obviously Thriller was a big, big moment for me as a kid, you know. So I knew who Michael Jackson was and I saw this movie, you know, well after it had come out, obviously. And um, what I'm realizing now is how much The Wiz influenced what I do with my own drag parody shows, which is to take something that we love, a story that we love as a community of queer people, much in the way that The Wiz did for African-Americans, and then I, you know, make it so that it's with queer characters and right. through a queer lens. And, and now I can see like, oh, I think The Wiz maybe was more inspiring to me than I ever realized. Yeah, and as I think I discussed in one of our interviews, Similarly, I saw this movie when I was younger and I liked it. I automatically was drawn to it. I loved that it leaned into, let's face it, some of the horror elements that The Wizard of Oz, because it was a family film, even though this is a family film too, but it shied away from in that 1930s way. I liked that there was more of a surrealism to The Wiz. Uh, there definitely was more of a menace to The Wiz, which appealed to kind of preteen me when I saw the film. But upon revisiting it later and then rewatching it for the podcast, I realized how much I really, truly love it. And I think I shared with you off the air that I might personally even like it more than The Wizard of Oz because of everything that it has to say. That is not to say that I dislike The Wizard of Oz, but I think that the impact that The Wiz has had on me as a viewer, and I keep finding things about it that are so powerful, especially speaking to what you're talking about, this reinterpretation for a different culture or a different audience is so profound to me, knowing you and knowing just this reanalysis through a queer lens that we do all the time. It's, it's special because I think that things like this have always existed in storytelling. The oral tradition of folklore, where when a story passed through different communities, different aspects would be brought out, or uh, different aspects would be celebrated or changed to speak to the community that was sharing the story. And I think that what happens here in The Wiz, by focusing the story of The Wizard of Oz through the black lens, they bring out so many more societal and cultural issues that we were willing to ignore when it was processed through a little white girl from Kansas. And I think in many ways what The Wizard of Oz did so well and why it stood the test of time is it, it, it took the uh, movie musical and made it uh, fantastic and technicolor and it really is one of the great embodiments of what you can do on a soundstage, you know, with the magic of movie making. And um, I think what The Wiz did was sort of go, okay, that's not the right movie for us to tell this story. And right. I didn't realize, I think like you, as a kid, how much depth there is to the choices they made. And we get into that in the interviews. Looking at it through a more um, 
a deeper lens, because that's what the podcast is all about, I was like, oh my God, like how amazing that they shot at the World Trade Center. Like how incredible that they were shooting in, you know, this parking garage. Like they went and used practical locations for this film. It's the antithesis of what, you know, the, the Wizard of Oz is as far as a movie making process goes. And that's critical. What I think I really love about it is that this isn't just a movie. It's a whole lot of movie. Yeah. And I think in some way, coming off of the success of the musical that had come four years prior to the film coming out, they knew that they really needed to make this work and bring that magic of the stage to screen, but bigger and bolder. And I think a lot needs to be said about Quincy Jones and Motown taking the stage play and reinterpreting it in this big cinematic way. And it feels like there was a lot at stake. And we know culturally and just through history that this movie, like many Midnight Mass movies that we talk about, was a commercial failure when it first came out. But it landed with the people it needed to land with. And that's why it has endured and become the cult phenomenon that it is today. That's right. Well, I can think of no better way to introduce our first guest. He is someone who had this film land at his feet when he was a kid and he grew up watching it. And uh, he's a wonderful educator and, and film scholar, really. Yeah, he and I have had the pleasure of getting to know each other, uh, doing convention panels together over the years. Uh, he is a brilliant author and podcast host. It's Victor Kearney, and he's here to talk to us about his love of the whiz right now. Welcome back, listeners. Our next guest is a phenomenal creator and voice in the fandom space who I've had the pleasure of getting to know over the years, thanks to being paired on various convention panels, as well as popping up on each other's podcasts. And honestly, I just think he's super cool. Not only is he the creator of the celebrated Strange Lore, a queer comic about a supernatural being who finds love while on the run from a dubious past, he also is the co-host of Megasheen, an acclaimed podcast for queer people of color, geeks, and nerds. As mentioned, he also routinely hosts panels at such venues as San Diego International Comic-Con and WonderCon, and his byline has appeared in such places as LGBTQ Nation, Them, BuzzFeed, and beyond. He's a writer, host, and much, much more. Please welcome Victor Kearney. Victor, welcome to the show. Yay. Yay. Welcome. Welcome. I was like, welcome to myself. <laughs> this is great. This is going to be fun. So, yeah. Well, we're so excited. Uh, Peaches and I both have been wanting to do The Wiz for a very long time, and it's funny because I know you, and Peaches has, as she said uh, before we went on the air, been admiring your work from afar. But Peaches is the one who actually spotted you on social media talking about the wisdom is like, we need to get Victor. And I was like, we absolutely do. So um, let's just jump into it. When did the love affair with the Wiz begin? Oh my God. When I was a kid, I think it will come on HBO like around Thanksgiving time. When I was a kid, I watched it and it was just 
everything that I wanted to see. It was just magical, colorful, Black people, magic, witches, everything that I love. Most queer kids love that type of stuff. And when you put it all in one big movie, you know, you're just going to live with it. But it was also some messages about family and love and friendship that kind of stuck with me as a kid that really means a lot today. And so, you know, ever since I was a kid, I just love this movie. It just sparks so much joy in me. Even to this day, I still get so much joy from it. And I just showed it to my students who were just stunned by this movie. They heard things about it, but when they actually saw it, they were like, oh my God. So yeah, I just always love this movie. I will love this movie to the day I die and return. So what is the class and what is the context in which you presented the movie? I think that's really interesting. We were doing it for Black History Month, but we was also doing it to show students about if, for those who are interested in making musicals, doing a ensemble cast, um, taking something from the past and remixing it to what's happening now. And as you know, The Wiz was remixed in a way to kind of be something for a Black audience. And a lot of things are being taken today and changed from like Romeo and Juliet may be done totally different for something today. Um, and our students are filmmakers and directors, writers. And so to show something like that was a little bit of, you know, biases for me, but also just something from this, like how you can be very creative, think outside of the box, really try to push something and take something that is well-known or very common and you can change it to something you know that fits your narrative or something that fits your culture to tell that same story i love that you mentioned from a filmmaking standpoint what it takes to make a musical and maybe uh young filmmakers who are interested in making a musical and i think that this is a really really great example of that translation from stage to screen because i think we see a lot of stage musicals kind of falter and fall on their way to the motion picture medium because i think people don't understand that you have to push it beyond just what we see on the stage it has to become a fully realized world in in more than one dimension, if that makes sense. And what really is amazing about The Wiz is they take that stage energy and kick it up to a thousand and all of these set pieces are fully immersive. Every place that Dorothy and her friends visit is a experience. And I just really think that the amount of sheer ingenuity in the filmmaking alone to pull this off before we went on the air, I referred to this as a movie that's a lot of movie, and it's a lot of movie. They deliver so much. I'm wondering, um, do you have any favorite set pieces or uh, places in Oz in this movie that you love more than others, or is it just the whole package for you? It's the whole package, but, you know, I think about when they go to the Emerald City. That was very, I don't know, I feel like that woke up my queerness to to everything. I feel like I was up to 10 with that. You know? <laughs> yes. uh, it was just beautiful to see the fashion, how they walked and how they, you know, did the song and how it was just really, it changed as it went from red to green, well, to green to red to gold. And so it was, it was especially got to gold. It was like a, a huge experience. But I also loved um, the brand new day when, you know, everybody was free from the witch and that just kind of really became a magical moment. For me, as again, as a kid, but still today, you know, so when those particular pieces pop up, the, it just always makes me smile. And the last one is Lena Horne. Just watching that part, it always makes me tear up, but it's just something, it's a good message. 
about believing in yourself. And so every time I see that, and sometimes if I feel really, you know, low or sad or something, I just watch that and it just gets me back on track. So those are some of the scenes I love and I have to see. And if I can find a clip to watch at any point, I, I need to see those. I will find them and watch them at any time of the day. Rewatching the movie, I realized growing up and being a kid who was obsessed with The Wizard of Oz. I mean, really, truly, you know, maybe one of my first cult movie obsessions. And there is that thing, and we talk about it on the podcast, where if I talk about a movie like The Wizard of Oz, which obviously is a hugely popular classic film, or um, Cabaret, or Little Shop of Horrors even, like where it was popular, but I talk about the cult of it, it's because there was something in it that specifically spoke to queer kids. And we have a different kind of cult and a different response. We're not part of just the popular, oh, I like that movie, or it's a great movie. It's like, oh, no, no, no. Margaret Hamilton as the witch is my religion. Judy Garland <laughs> as Dorothy is, you know, uh, a spiritual experience. And I think with The Wiz, especially because as a kid, um, I was... It's funny, I look at it now and I actually can appreciate it, but I wasn't that turned on by Return to Oz. But The Wiz captured my imagination. Also, I grew up a kid in the 80s. So uh, mm -hmm. I grew up in Maryland and my, my parents were from Washington, D.C. So even though it wasn't New York City, D.C. in the 80s, Baltimore in the 80s looked like New York City in the 80s. You know, it was it was grungy. It was dangerous. It was urban and one of the things about the whiz and the scenes that you just described is that some of them are on these gorgeous amazing sets you know so um brand new day is you know that, that with the fans going in the sweatshop the setting is so studio film mgm you know whatever but many of the scenes in the whiz are shot on location so lest we forget they were shooting at the world trade center you know, Oz was shot at the World Trade Center between those towers. The size, the epicness of all those costume changes, all that Busby Berkeley giant dancing. I think as a queer kid, that sequence, if it doesn't kind of touch a specific part of your queer little heart, you know, mm -hmm. your musical queer fabulous heart. I mean, Quincy Jones on that gold piano, like, you know, towards yeah. the end, it's just amazing. And so I... I Love every everything that you brought up. But in addition to the size of the movie and Michael bringing up that it's a movie, 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 you know, and it's also a great sort of um, musical movie where we get those giant wide shots of the big dance numbers with these incredible dancers doing incredible stuff. It's also got movie stars. It has, I mean, we, let's talk about the cast. So as a kid growing up, you know, it's got Diana Ross. It's got Michael Jackson. You know, lest we forget, like, these are not just Motown's biggest stars, the biggest stars in the world of music, of pop music, of a lot of things, you know, R&B, soul, rock and roll. I mean, the Supremes, you know, she had a musical made about her, you know, Dream Girls, <laughs> you know. So you got, you got her starring as Dorothy. What's your relationship with people like Michael Jackson, Diana Ross, Nipsey Russell, you know, all these stars? They just made it feel so realistic to me as a kid. I mean, because again, we're looking at Diana Ross and like you, Peaches, you know, I grew up in the 80s and variety shows. I was just talking about variety shows that we need to bring them back because it was just something about watching like Diana Ross in anything. Mm -hmm. um, she never did anything like at a low level. Everything was just always 
turned up in so much. Yeah. But to see her as Dorothy was kind of turned down in a way that made her really like realistic to me. Um, she was like a goddess because every time you saw her, it was glamour, it was fashion, it was flash and so much. But to see her in that role, it was just kind of like, she can be a member of my family. She could be my next door neighbor. And it really made that very personal to me. And to see Michael Jackson, we already saw him, you know, we just knew he was just a character anyway. But to see him kind of really define how much he really had to offer. And that was early. That's before Thriller. So that's before all the things, Captain EO, all the stuff that we later, but we were beginning to see where his talent really was. Nipsey Russell, we always grew up with him because he was either on Sesame Street or something that we just saw him and we saw him in different things. And I think Ted Ross, I might be saying his name, Ted or Ted Ross, who played the lion. And uh, if I think if I'm wrong with the name, let me know. But he was the original lion from The Wiz. Yeah, and so to yeah. have him there was great, but also there was something queer about the lion that just kind of stuck Ooh, with me. Yes. That, you know, like, I have to be this way to survive. And that's something that a lot of queer people, especially queer kids of color, we have to be a certain way to survive. That lion kind of spoke to me in so many different ways. And so, you know, seeing that cast together, seeing them hang out together was like watching friends hang out or watching your you and your friends hang out. So it just felt so real to me to see that cast. I really like what you said about how this movie takes Diana Ross and uh, kind of removes the goddess idea of her, that we think of her as this diva and this pop star and and humanizes her in the way that she could be part of your family, someone relatable. Because I, I wanted to dig into that There's this sociology, when you look at the story of Oz in general, you know, the idea that Dorothy comes to this technicolor place and it kind of represents a world other than the Kansas that she knows. But then when you take that very same idea and transport it here to New York City, to Dorothy as a school teacher, to Dorothy as Diana Ross, and you shift the perspectives, you know, what's really interesting about Judy Garland's Dorothy, she's kind of fascinated, but you never feel like she's in danger, right? Like, it's sort of like she can go around and she's sort of like, oh, this is all happening. Diana Ross is terrorized through most of this movie. Like, through most of the film, not only is the world reacting to her in this way that's scary, but she's scared of the world, which I think is partially, of course, based on what we are given for her character setup, but there's social commentary there. Like the world is much more dangerous for her than sweet white Dorothy from Kansas, especially left alone on the streets. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to just that that slight social commentary switchover, utilizing the same lens from a different perspective. You hit the nail on the head when I talk about the, you know, white Dorothy. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't really feel like she was in danger, but it felt like she was just, you know, I'm leaving Kansas to go to, you know, the next big city, you know, just to see what's going on. But for Diana Ross and the role of, of Dorothy, it, it just felt different. Um, it felt like you were, and I love how they, they did set it up like she's scared of the world, but a lot of us were scared of the world. And I think that kind of helped us understand what we were seeing um, when we were watching The Wiz, the particular song she sings um, after she meets the Munchkins and she's on her way to meet Michael, well, Scarecrow, that song really hits me because it talks about being afraid. And there's a there's a line where she was like, I'm going to be all right. But she kind of says it in a way that's kind of like, I'm not sure, a little cry type of way. But when I hear that, it's like, that's something that plays in my head, like when I move to a new place or do something or today having, you know, crazy projects on my plate, um, it's that little that little part of the song plays back to me. And I think a lot of us may remember that song because it's like, at the end of the day, you're going to be all right. 
Yeah. What are you afraid of? Why are you holding back? It's time to, you know, to explore and see what's happening, whether you get home or not. And I think that I can't remember the name of that song, but it just some it's something about that song that really kind of haunts in what is happening with a lot of us. Um, we're faced with so much and afraid of things, but at the end of the day, you know you're going to be all right. Something I was thinking about when I did the rewatch, um, you know, because whenever we rewatch these movies for the podcast, it's fun because I'm sort of looking at it through a different lens of like, what's the deeper thing here? Why are we connecting to this? What makes it cult? What makes it specifically cult? Of course, I think for just like we were talking about queer people having a response to movies like Cabaret and The Wizard of Oz, I think specifically queer black folks growing up with certain movies have a, a cult experience where, you know, I remember Bob one time, Bob the drag queen one time saying to me like, you know, all these movies that you love, they're, they're white people movies. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And he was like, I didn't grow up watching those movies. And I said, well, what did you grow up watching? And he was like, I grew up watching The Wiz. I grew up watching Dreamgirls. I grew up, you know, uh, well, Little Shop of Horrors, which we had Bob the Drag Queen on for because those movies spoke to his experience differently as a queer person and as a Black person. And I was watching this film thinking, um, okay, in The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy yearns to get out. She's dreaming of a world somewhere over the rainbow. She understands that Kansas is limiting. Whereas Dorothy in The Wiz is afraid to leave Harlem. She's afraid to go south of, I forget what street it is, but you know. 125th. 125th. She's afraid of that. And, and it's her family who are, are, are trying to push her to have the courage to go out and explore. And you know, due to, you know, the great white flight. I wonder if kids, you know, Victor and I, I was born in the 70s, so I grew up in the 80s. And so the the whiz landscape that's presented is recognizable to me as, as an urban landscape of the 80s. But kids that grew up, you know, millennials and Gen Z, they've grown up in the Sex in the City universe where New York City isn't scary. You know, Manhattan is fabulous. You know, um, the subways don't look dirty or graffitied, but... For me watching this, I really was like, oh, that I remember. This is what exploring a city could be like. And so her terror is steeped in something actually really real, you know, much more real than The Wizard of Oz, right? Like she's in a fantastic version of New York City, but it's still got the garbage. In fact, people are made of garbage. This scarecrow is made of garbage. It's this different thing. And so the fear of it is so different than The Wizard of Oz. Now, this is all a long way for me to get to my only criticism of this film. And maybe you'll realize, I love what we're, what we're doing here, what we're talking about, why the fear is there. However, I want more Mabel King. I don't like that the, the witch does not show up until the, you know, the third act. And she's only in that one sequence. And yeah. as a kid who grew up watching What's Happening, it blew my mind to discover. I remember, you know, my mother explaining to me, like, that's Raj's mom, you know, <laughs> dressed as yeah. the witch, you know. And she's in that fantastic costume. She has that incredible number. But um, that's my only criticism. I don't know how you feel about it, Victor, but I, I feel like we could have had more witch throughout the movie. But I get why we don't, you know. I agree. I, I would like to have seen more of her. Um, she was scary as a little kid. Yeah. But at the same time, she reminded me of people that I that I always saw. You know, there was always someone, you know, who kind of kind of have that look, or, you know, in a way. Um, but I would have liked to have seen more of her throughout, maybe like just show up to like watching them 
or maybe something where it's like after what happened in the subway, she's like, oh, you didn't take care of the thing, you know, but, you know, something like that, because it would have been nice to, you know, to see her or to see if she had another song, at least right. have two. Songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have loved that. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about it. And of course, when you look at the pop culture existence of both of the films, you compare what is presented in The Wizard of Oz versus The Wiz. And it occurs to me, and, and we spoke about this earlier, about Dorothy Judy Garland's, her approach to the world versus Diana Ross's. But I think in The Wizard of Oz, the real issue or lack thereof is that it's Dorothy is happening to the world in The Wizard of Oz, whereas the world is happening to Dorothy uh. in The Wiz. And I think that makes a lot of sense because in The Wizard of Oz, everything's sort of from Dorothy's perspective. So, of course, we meet all the major players up front and they're all very invested in her. Whereas in The Wiz, it's sort of like they don't know she's there until she happens upon them and she has to kind of stake her claim in the world. And I think that that's a really, really fascinating parallel and juxtaposition for, for the two versions of the characters. I would have loved more Mabel King. I would have loved to have seen more Lena Horne in the movie too. But I think that if they had all just shown up for her right away, it would have sort of undermined what Diana Ross's purpose in the film was all about. Or do you disagree, Victor? No, I agree with you. And I like the way that you put that. I, I think that, you know, her going to Oz was kind of the bigger version of what her real life was, was like, you're placed in this world now. How do you get through this? But I think also the message was you get through things with people who believe in you, with people who are beside you. And I think that was also a very strong message that was sent in both films. But for The Wiz, it really drove home for me to see that. I was thinking about the overt connections we have as queer people to both movies. And I think one of the things that I'm realizing more as an adult, that The Lion is more obviously queer, you know, to, to anyone watching in both films. And I'm so glad they kept that sort of representation. I think The Lion in The Wiz is so underrated. They give her, like, a fabulous wig. I mean, she's not wearing, like, you know... <laughs> Some mangy old, you know, it's like the ringlets are set. It looks good. There's a little heel on his boot. You know, when he's strutting, you can tell he did it on stage. He's just owning every bit of that part. But what I realize now as an adult, like the Tin Man and the Scarecrow, there's no toxic masculinity there. There's nothing threatening and they're gentle and sensitive and they have feelings and they're yearning for to be smarter and to have more empathy and to have a heart. And I love that that carries over in The Wiz, especially with Michael Jackson. I mean, Nip Nipsey Russell's fabulous, but I feel like, you know, Michael Jackson is the scarecrow is another thing that us queer kids could identify with. He's soft. He's delicate. Rewatching the movie and seeing him do those spins and the way that he moves and we know now that he studied, you know, with the masters, you know, he 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 sought out the dance masters and was studying. But you watch him, he makes it look so effortless. But there's a lot in this movie beyond the fabulous, you know, costumes and lighting. Like, I think there's a lot to be said about representations of men that aren't toxic. And both films actually, I think, do this really well, where her three best friends are probably queer. Maybe that's me being a little bit fucked up where I'm like, I don't know if straight men at the time could act this wonderful, you know? Maybe I'm heterophobic. I don't know. Do you understand where I'm going with this, Victor? 
But there's like a yeah. deeper queer connection yeah. to these characters. Yes. You know, when you look at all three of them, they do represent, I believe, different queer parts of our lives, different um, queerness within people that we have that met or know. Like you think about Michael Jackson, Scarecrow. It's like, you know, he's singing a song about, you know, you can't win. You can't get over, you know, all that stuff like that. And then when he's given the chance to show that he's more than what is expected of him. He begins to shine. He does those spins. He's, you know, making the decisions. He's able to be more than what was told to him. And I think that's a lot of us that when we're told that we're, you know, so many negative things, you know, I grew up in the South. So, you know, we have homosexual demons in us or whatever. The minute we are allowed to be ourselves and to shine, we grow, we become something powerful. Again, you think about the lion, as I mentioned before, you know, he was acting tough because he had to do it to survive. But once he got in tune with his feelings, he became a stronger person. And so I, I really got that from him. The same way with um, the Tin Man. You think about the Tin Man, you know, just wanting to feel. Sometimes when you're, you know, as a queer kid or person, you're, you turn that off because you're tired of feeling the hurt and the pain. But he wanted to feel. He wanted to feel all those things. And I think once we are able to do that, we understand ourselves and people more. So, yeah, when I look at all those characters, they just kind of speak to me in so many different ways. So I'm glad you mentioned that, Peaches. Mm. Well, I think what lends further credence to what you both are saying is at the end of the movie, when they finally meet the Wiz, as played by Richard Pryor, Unlike in The Wizard of Oz, where the wizard's like, yeah, I'm a phony, and Dorothy, you and I can leave together in my balloon. In this version, Dorothy kind of tells the wizard what's what, and she says to him, like, you know, we can't help you, you have to help yourself. And she illustrates exactly what you just said, Victor. Each of them, they went on the journey to find themselves, to be themselves. You now need to go do that. She kind of puts it on the wizard, like, they did the work, bitch, now you got to. And it's kind of great, you know, because she's not getting saved by anybody herself because she did the work too. That more than anything was what hit me over the head with my rewatch. As a kid, I don't think I saw the difference as much, but rewatching it now as an adult, especially knowing that we were going to do this podcast, I was like, oh my God, it's Dorothy who controls the finale. It's Dorothy who has the answers. And that especially I bet for young girls, you know, it makes a difference. She is the one saving them in the end. And, you know, Richard Pryor's like leaning into her, like, save me, help me, I need help. You know, I'm a, I'm pathetic and I'm a mess. And it's Diana Ross who says, oh, here's the answer. Huge difference. That's a big difference. You know, it's funny. This last year when Pearl came out and everyone talked about how Pearl was connected to the Wizard of Oz and we get that whole like end sequence where the camera's just fixed on her till the end of the movie, essentially. Yeah. Obviously, Mia Goth is a great performer and, and praise where praise is due. But then watching The Wiz, I'm like, for as much that we are giving credit to Pearl for kind of like looking to the Wizard of Oz for inspiration, that final shot of Diana Ross that does not cut, that is on her while she sings home right into the credits where she's crying and she's going through the emotions, that to me was the Pearl reference, right? That, like, you know, that they borrowed from. But also that performance where we end with her, that song, just her. Victor, what are your thoughts on this end sequence? That's a bold way to end a movie and a very big thing to put on an actor's shoulders. It is. Um, it was something about when you watch that, it's like watching yourself. 
it was like she was looking in a mirror, singing it to herself and reminding herself. And every time I watch that, again, I always tear up on that because it's like, I think there was a moment, I want to say she said that that was a very personal moment when she was doing that. So it, it just felt really good to watch. But it, it also made me think about like when you are thinking about yourself and how to get yourself out of ruts, you know, you are talking to yourself. You are pushing yourself. And I just felt like when she was doing that, she was looking at herself in a mirror that reminded herself of who she was. And it was perfect. It was like one of the best scenes in any movie that I've seen over too many years in life. But yeah, it, it's just like, wow, you don't really get that that much anymore. You really don't. You're exactly right. That moment in Pearl comes from The Wiz, not The Wizard of Oz. It's just as fantastic. I think it's so shocking when you see it in Pearl because it's so audacious. But then you go back and you rewatch something like The Wiz and you realize this is the confidence of a director and the confidence of a star together thinking we can do this, this close up, you know, in this long take. This is not a throwaway song. This is the song, you know. So to make this choice is so audacious and so confident. And God, does she nail it. I mean, I, I defy anyone to watch that movie and get to that moment and not be there. Diana Ross is with every fiber of her being. And we know that she was doing it to playback, right? But can you imagine what it was like on the set and the number of times she probably had to do it? You see the veins in her throat. You know, you see physically that she is singing out and owning every minute of it. It's just gorgeous and beautiful. Okay, the other part of the finale that's pretty wonderful is that we don't really get Glinda, much like the Wicked Witch of the West. You know, in, in, in The Wizard of Oz, of course, we're introduced to both which is right at the start. She lands and we meet Glinda and we meet the Wicked Witch. And this film, we don't meet them until the end. And really with Glinda, you just really don't meet her until the very end. Lena Horne, I mean, how gorgeous. And, you know, and I think when she filmed this, she's in her 60s, which in 1978 or 77, whenever they made this, we know women, how they were treated once they literally passed the age of like 40. So the fact that they bring in Lena Horne in her 60s to do the Glinda number. Victor, what are your thoughts on uh, the whole thing? The floating babies, the Lena Horne of it all. To see the floating babies, it's like, it made me think of a grandmother and, you know, her babies are out there in the world in different parts of the universe and she's looking out for them. And Lena Horne, I didn't, you know, of course I didn't know who she was. I didn't know she was when I was a kid um, until like a little later. But to see this woman, um, and I remember my grandmother saying she's about my age, you know, or like older than me. And to see her sing this song, it was just great because it also reminded me of when I used to go to church and, um, you know, the older woman was sing songs and they will always, you know, sing the songs to us, but as the mother of the church or what have you, um, just seeing that scene has always just struck so much, so much in me. And Lena did a great job. I'm so glad they reached out to Lena. I couldn't even think who they would have asked to have done that. Um, and at the time, Lena Horne makes so much sense. Right. Uh, but just having that legend, having a person telling you, you know, everything that you ever needed was always within you. It just made so much sense and beautiful, beautiful. The set was beautiful. Her gown was beautiful. It's everything. It's funny because ever since then, no matter where I've lived or gone in this country, there's always someone who has done drag as Glinda. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Horns version 
And I love that, especially when I lived, you know, in Georgia. I loved seeing that, that people remember that and people have that same experience about Lena Horne in that role. And of course, I am mildly obsessed with the fact that there are just like weird space babies behind her. I just have to, <laughs> yeah. it, it does kind of crack me up. Um, yeah. We've talked about the emotional impact of the final song, Home with Diana Ross, as well as the song with Lena Horne. And throughout the interview, you've referenced a lot of uh, the music in it. And is, I, I realize with a musical, especially one as beloved as this, sometimes it's impossible to choose. But do you have a favorite number in this movie or does it change? It's hard to have one. I feel like I have a few. You know, I have the the beginning, the family one. Um, I love Don't Lose the Feeling. Um, I love them all. It's kind of hard. If I uh, Do I have a favorite? Um, I will say, you know, Believe in Yourself. That would that will be the favorite. But there's just too many numbers in here to really, it's hard. We have covered a few musicals on the podcast, Little Shop of Horrors, Cabaret, as far as movies that were taken from musicals. Is that it, Michael? I can't think of any others. But The Wiz was one where, you know, I, I had to go look it up. So it premiered on Broadway in 74, and then the film was made in 77 and it came out in 78, which is a pretty quick turnaround. Yeah. Um, and then I was looking to see about revivals. Uh, there was one, I think, in 84, very short run, and then one a little bit later. But I was just thinking like, God, I just saw Jinx Monsoon and, and the 20 plus year revival of Chicago, right? And like Fiddler on the Roof is playing here in San Francisco. It's a touring roadshow, but it's time for The Wiz to get a big Broadway revival. I mean, I, I, don't you think we need to get that back on Broadway? It's time. Yes, and I know it's coming here in Los Angeles. Is it? Yes, I'm already going, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's coming back. And it's funny that y'all had, you know, if we think about drag queens coming, you know, going on Broadway, you know, Bob the drag queen would be great in the Wiz. Um, yes. Oh my God. Sorry, I'm 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 doing the Google search right now just to see, but it is coming back to Broadway. I swear to God, I didn't know that. 2024. It's on Playbill.com. So God, I don't. We don't even have to demand it. It's happening. So there we go. It's coming back to Broadway next year. Mm -hmm. Speaking of that, uh, a, a few years ago, probably more than a few, but what is time anymore? They did The Wiz Live as a television special. Yes. And I was wondering what your thoughts on that were. It was fun. Different versions are always different because they did a mini revival in New York City, I want to say like 10, 15 years mm -hmm. ago. Um, they had Ashanti in it, and I went to that one. But um, this was actually really good. They had great people who played in the roles. Um, and it really wanted, I wanted to see more after that. Um, so I'm excited to see what they would do on Broadway, what they would do here to Pantages, just because I've been told a set will change. Oh, great. And if y'all have never seen a stage version of it, it is really great. We put it on in college, <laughs> down in Murray, Kentucky, Murray State University. Uh, fabulous. But we also, you know, I've also seen it on stage and, it is beautiful. So I, I'm really excited that people have a, a chance to see this. Victor, when you say you put it on, do you mean that you were on stage in it? And who were you? I was not. Uh, I wanted to be. I did. I couldn't try out because there was a lot of stuff that was happening. I was doing too much in college. Okay, well, then I guess the question is, if you could be cast in The Wiz, think of your your young, queer little heart, uh, who would you want to be cast as? The Lion. The Lion, okay, the lion. I love that. You want that fabulous wig, don't you? <laughs> that wig, that is what, that's, yeah. So before we head out, Victor, one thing that I know about you, although it is not uh, specifically 
relegated to the whiz is uh, your love of 70s movies encapsulates a very specific thing. And that's like you love movies where people roller skate. And I believe there's some roller skating happening in the whiz. But I, I know over the course of panels that we've done together that you love Xanadu. And uh, you've talked about uh, some of the other movies where roller skating happens. What is the draw there? I'm just curious. Xanadu is funny because Xanadu is on my wall. And, <laughs> and I work at a film school, so I have basically push that movie on everybody here. Xanadu is just a magical movie, but it it was something about just, you know, Roller Skates was a big time, big thing in my in my day. You know, also I love Wonder Woman way too much. And so that was a mix of mythology, Olivia Newton John, roller skating, fantasy, all those things. And I remember almost like peed my pants when I saw that as a kid, Olivia Newton John and Linda Carter together. Cause I was like, this is too much. The world could have ended that moment and I would have been very happy. But um, it's something about those type of movies that are just really done with care, regardless of how they turned out or to know that the Razzies exist only because of Xanadu. Okay, whatever. It's still a great movie. I don't care what anyone says. And when you think about, you know, Xanadu, the Apple, Skate Town USA, those type of films, even the pirate movie. They have something that just kind of grabbed you and kept you and, and still keep a lot of us after, what, 30, 40 years? Yeah. I asked about it. Uh, it. It may have seemed like it was out of left field for the episode about The Wiz, but the reality is, is I think both movies ask you to submit to a fantasy and and uh, kind of find yourself in that fantasy. And I knew that you would be able to speak to that. So that's why I asked. I know Michael's going to ask his, his final question very soon. But before he does, <laughs> because we're talking about the roller skates and in the whiz, I think it's more of a skateboard moment. I yeah. told Michael they roller skate, but it's actually more of a skateboard moment. But speaking of roller skates and a movie that I, I thought of while watching the whiz, and I thought, oh, you know, it would be a great double feature. I apologize. I did not think Xanadu. But I kept thinking about another Midnight Mass movie where I was like, The Wiz with the Warriors as a yes. double feature yeah. could be such a great bill, you know, and we go and live in that grimy 70s New York that's been heightened to sort of fabulous, fantastic levels. You know, I feel like The Wiz and The Warriors, you know, and The Warriors, of course, has a great roller skating moment. I'm sure Victor's well aware. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I love The Warriors. I love that movie because it's so out there ridiculous. And, and then you have Michael Beck, Swan. I mean, he was really high. Yes. My God. But anyway, <laughs> it was a great movie, and I love that. That's like a multiverse of New York. Yes. In one universe is this, and one universe is that. It, it's perfect. I like that. I mean, I would buy that they shot in the same subway, except that Michael Beck didn't get attacked by trash cans, as far as we know. <laughs> okay. Uh, one one bit of note. I had to look it up. While I was re-watching The Wiz, I'm like sitting there watching it, and that subway sequence, I'm like, this looks like the same subway that Michael Jackson shot Bad in. So I looked it up. The video for Bad was shot in the exact same subway. It's the exact same location. Oh, wow. So if you didn't yeah. know that bit of trivia, now you know. So last question. One thing that I always like to ask guests who have embraced these cult movies that have grown with them over the years. You saw The Wiz as a kid and you loved it. And you love it still. You just showed it to your students to help impart that love to another generation. Has your relationship with the movie changed at all? No, I think I have to watch it at least three times a year. 
it still makes me feel, you know, great and relaxed and at home and present. It's just a perfect movie to me. You know, as long as I live, I will always push that movie out. So it's still the same for me to this day. That's fabulous. Well, Victor, thank you for giving us a little nudge that we needed to finally uh, get the whiz, the, the, the spotlight it deserves on the Midnight Mass podcast. Um, now, I know that I follow you on social media. Where can other people follow you? You can follow me on Twitter. I'm Wonderman5, two ends, five. And I'm there. I'm also on Instagram. His name is Victor, all one word. Victor with a K. Yeah, Victor with a K. Yeah. So I am there. So you can just find me on both of those places. Great. Thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about The Wiz and easing on down the road with us a little bit today. Thank you for having me. Okay, that was Victor Kearney, and oh my God, I just loved that conversation. I feel like he had so much to say, and he's just a lovely person. I could actually hear him talk about movies all day long. Absolutely. I really love uh, Victor's thoughtful analysis of the film, and of course, uh, even though we deviated a little bit from the topic at hand, uh, because we've done so many panels... Who, us? <laughs> because we've done so many panels together, I knew of his love for movies like Xanadu. Uh, and in a way, it didn't feel too far afield because Xanadu and The Wiz both utilized the fantastic of music to speak to the other experience. Music and wheels. Yes. But, you know, I, I should uh, apologize because, you know, some bitch out there listening is ready to correct me. And I think Victor actually kind of gave me a look when I said this. Um, I said that there were roller skaters in The Wiz, but they're not. They're skateboarders. Right. <laughs> I do know the difference. I just am old and got confused. Take your drink, whoever is out there <laughs> listening. Apparently there's a drinking game where people drink if I mention how old I am. It's true. Uh, a brief sidebar, speaking of going uh, away from the topic. I have received several messages from listeners out there who are very fascinated by the fact that you, Peaches, <laughs> love to bring up the fact that you're older than me. And someone said to me in their Instagram comments that they were going to start taking a drink every time you mentioned your age. And I told them that was a bad idea because they would die. <laughs> <laughs> they, they'll be in a blackout constantly. I didn't know that I brought it up that much, but I do. My defense would be this. It is relevant to a discussion of things that are cult. A lot of what I am the most obsessed with as a cult fan has to do with, you know, when I first experienced it. So for me, my coming of age period is obviously the 80s. Context matters, especially when you're discussing art, because That's art is right. a reflection of the time that it was made. That's right. And when we look at a lot of these films, even though a lot of the cult movies we discuss on this podcast were not initially well-received, they endure for a reason, because of changing context, because of changing nuance, because maybe the world wasn't ready for it. We know, for example, that when The Wiz came out, it was coming at the end of the black exploitation, for lack of a better term, era, and it sort of put a pause to that. But 
Why did it? Why didn't audiences turn out for The Wiz? I think we know on a larger scale, it's because the people who let this movie fail were not the people who needed this movie. That's right. Well, I mean, that's so many of the movies we cover, right? So I don't know who that listener is who is sliding into your DMs um, to talk about me, to talk shit about me. But all I have to say to you is go fuck yourself. And now have a drink. (laughs) (laughs) Good. I'm old. Um, <laughs> speaking of people that are younger than me, I think she's younger than me. I'm almost positive. She must be younger than me. Before we bring her on, I do want to say, oh my God, our Patreon is kicking. Have you noticed? It really is. We've been, uh, we've been turning it out lately. Yeah, we, we've been. I mean, if you like the Midnight Mass podcast and you want more, damn, do we offer you all sorts of random shit on our Patreon. We've got mini-masses where we talk about all sorts of stuff. We've got behind-the-scenes extra interviews with our guests that we put out over there. We, we uh, write talk- little essays about movies we've been watching or movies well, you we think do. you should you watch. you do. You sometimes do. I don't really write essays. I talk about stuff. I'm, oh, yeah. They're, they're like nice captions. <laughs> <laughs> You're bet more prolific at the writing part of our Patreon than I am. I'm good at blabbing. Blabbing and flabbing. Maybe we should do have a drinking game whenever I talk about how fat I am. Um, anyway. <laughs> we have to get back to the yellow brick road. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so speaking of guests and people that are younger than me, this next guest is someone I recently had the pleasure of absolutely just falling in love with. She actually asked me to be on her podcast, which we'll discuss. And I went on her podcast and just realized, oh my God, we're meant to be talking about stuff together. I just loved it. And so um, I found out that she has a really specific and unique connection to The Wiz. And so we asked her to come on the Midnight Mass podcast. And she's here to discuss The Wiz with us. Without further ado, it's the wonderful... Parker Sargent. Well, welcome back, ghouls and goblins. It's my extreme pleasure to introduce our next guest, who I actually just had the pleasure of meeting not too long ago. We haven't yet met in person. It's one of those new, modern, progressive relationships where we've met virtually. I cannot wait to meet her in person because it was as if I've known her my whole life, just speaking with her. Such a kindred spirit. And I met her because I was on her podcast. And that's how a lot of this happens. She has a fantastic podcast called What is Queer that I know. Listeners of Midnight Mass already know that a big chunk of what we do on this podcast isn't just about cult movies. It's about queer culture, queer fandom, queer everything. And so if you are listening and that intrigues you or you enjoy listening about all this queer stuff, you got to check out the What is Queer podcast. But not only that, she makes queer documentaries. She is a queer filmmaker who I've also had the pleasure of getting to see some sneak screeners of her films. Amazing stuff. 
One about Sal Piero that blew my mind. Another thing of Midnight Mass uh, interest. Sal Piero, of course, is of interest to our listeners. I could go on and on, but I need to bring her on because we got to talk about The Wiz. Without further ado, it's the fabulous Parker Sargent. Yay! <laughs> it's always weird to hear yourself intro. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, it is true that there are just certain people you meet. And when you and I had the conversation on what is queer, which our listeners can start there if you want. There's a Peaches Christ episode um, where we, Parker and I, dig into to queer cult movie fandom and other things it just was so obvious that you're part of the family we all are <laughs> cut from the same cloth and so asking you to come on our show and one of the movies that you mentioned being obsessed with was the whiz and michael and i had already gotten the ball rolling on a whiz episode it was perfect so let's start there when how where when did you fall in love with the whiz i have a very weird experience with The Wiz that maybe a lot of people don't in that I'm probably one of the only white people that saw The Wiz before they saw The Wizard of Oz. Wow. So when I saw The Wizard of Oz later in life, I was like, what the hell is this? They're stealing The Wiz. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Amazing. So, you know, I had a pretty unique upbringing in that for the first couple of years of my life, we were very transient. We lived in communal situations. We were often homeless. And when I was three years old, very luckily, my mother met my stepfather, a U.S. Army soldier, and he took us out of that lifestyle, but he took us into a new lifestyle, which was his family, because he was black. That was a whole new world for mm. me as a child to now be part of this Southern Baptist religious family from Mississippi. So I never had television before as a transient child. So I never saw TV or movies really. And once we were homed and I got this new fabulous family, while they were religious, they wanted to also present material that was very positive for black people and reflected the black experience in a positive sense. And in the 70s and 80s, there weren't a whole lot of films that did that. Right. So The Wiz was really just one of those films that my grandmother played all the time when it would come on TV, it was on in the house. And then once we got VHS machines, <laughs> cause I'm old, <laughs> it was just on a repeat in our home. So the whiz was really, again, one of the first films I ever saw, but through my life consistently has remained a film that I not only love, but go back to oftentimes in listening to your podcast, I'll hear people say, Oh, I watched the film for this meeting that we're having for this right. discussion and you know i did but i didn't have to because i didn't have to a few months ago right because <laughs> it's kind of a thing for me i feel like the whiz is campy and it's glamorous and it's fun and it's full of these iconic stars that we know when we love but it's also exploring the troubles of racism and consumerism and otherism so even though it's a musical versus the Wizard of Oz, which this is a real musical. There's yes. music in The Wizard of Oz, but this is a musical. Even though it's a musical, it's dark. And right. I think even as a kid, that's why I liked it. So many aspects of this film spoke to me and, and to my otherness. Yeah. Well, one of the things I wanted to point out, I don't know if either of you know, but today, the day of our recording, this interview with you, Parker, just happens to be Quincy Jones' birthday. 
No. Oh, happy birthday, Quincy Jones. Yeah, and I saw that this morning and I was like, I love that we're about to hop on and talk about The Wiz because it feels like just an extra blessing from above, you know, above from Motown. Uh, but <laughs> you mention the first portion of your life, you have this very transient experience and then you end up in this religious home, but they're showing The Wiz. And the thing about it is, is The Wiz, as you pointed out, speaks to all of these things. Dorothy kind of has that parallel in the movie, looking for her place, finding her people, finding the thing that speaks to her. But also, as you point out in your work and, and as you alluded to, I think that Yes, this movie is safe and speaks to a positive Black experience. But then there's also the queerness of it, the otherness that maybe that the religious family that you're living with is not seeing. And when did that start clicking for you? That question, like, gave me little tingles because it like has so many layers. The answer to, like, when did I realize the queerness? I want to say immediately. My mother told me when I came out to her at 14 years old, her first response was, well, when you were three years old, you told me you were a girl. So wow. when I later became trans, it was... You know, my family had no issue with that. So I have to say, if I knew at three years old that I was a woman on the inside, then I have to probably have known that there was a queerness to me, even if I didn't know what that was yet. So I think right away. And, and the opening of the film, as you say, Dorothy doesn't feel that kin to her family. And it, again, I love The Wizard of Oz, but even more than in The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy here, Diana Ross, the family's having this amazing bonding moment. The Wizard of Oz, it's, a, it's like, ah, everybody's running around and the, the family's very separated. In The Wiz, the family is so close and together and they're in this most loving moment. And, um, you know, Auntie M is singing the song. And that's when Dorothy leaves the room. She leaves that group in their most loving moment, in their most inclusive moment. There's something inside her that says, I'm not part of this. I don't belong here. And I think that's queer. When I rewatch it, I still think. I don't know if that's what Quincy Jones intended, but that's what I get from there. That Dorothy is queer and all of these characters, actually, certainly Michael Jackson's character, uh, who <laughs> growing up, I loved Michael Jackson. People always questioned, was he gay? I always knew in my head Michael Jackson was gay. So there was never like a push and pull with me. I identified him as a homosexual icon in my life. But I think even like the Tin Man, his relationship with Teenie, who is an inanimate object isn't a woman and that in and of itself is like oh this is a person having a different kind of relationship and then of course the lion whose <laughs> whole thing isn't about courage it's about not being a man right? yeah and that also speaks to how men of color were feeling in the 70s and 80s but again he's got his high heels on and he has a certain stance and a certain posture so to me i feel like they're all queer I think I knew it right away. And then every time I would watch the film, it resonated with my queerness a little bit more. Thank goddess that that carried over because I think for queer people, The Wizard of Oz, the 1939 film, obviously is, you know, queer religion for so many people because it's our first exposure, unless you're Parker, uh, uh, <laughs> to, um, you know, 
to Judy Garland in many ways, to that sort of level of fabulousness in cinema of the, the the colors and the magic and Margaret Hamilton as the witch. And the three friends are about chosen family, the Tin Man, the Lion, the Scarecrow, that they're rejected for one reason or another. They have these sort of flaws that for them are these fatal flaws. Like that is so queer and that completely... Oh in, in many ways, I feel like The Wiz, it feels even more queer somehow. I mean, The Lion, there's no subtlety there. I mean, it is just a fabulous, queer, black queen, like owning that wig, owning those little heels, strutting around, being fabulous. Michael Jackson's queerness is so different in many ways. It's so, it's so, it's a different kind of expression of queerness. I have to ask you, Parker, and this is kind of a, um, a digression because we're talking about Michael Jackson. Obviously, Michael Jackson mm-hmm. complicated for uh, queer people. You know, complicated life, complicated story. Of course, a lot of it comes down to what you believe he was later in life. You know, obviously, there are people who passionately believe he was a, a horrible person and people who passionately believe he was a victim of being unfairly accused of something that he did or didn't do. Putting all that aside, which I know is hard to do, but but just looking at Michael Jackson, I think we can all agree that he's queer. There's something queer about Michael Jackson. Everything is queer about Michael Jackson. Well, I wonder, <laughs> Parker, as a trans woman, if you think I'm kind of out there with this notion, like the more I learned about Michael Jackson and watched Michael Jackson evolve, I know that Michael Jackson used to dress as a nurse to go to Disneyland, a femme presenting nurse to, you know, he would wear these disguises, often choosing to be femme presenting in his disguise, even though he was a very large man, quote unquote, the obsession with Elizabeth Taylor, the the plastic surgery, there's part of me that's like, is this a pop star who was trans and couldn't ever really fully express that part of themselves. So they did everything short of transitioning publicly. Because when I see Michael Jackson and I see the the sort of the expression of Michael Jackson, especially later as, as he evolved, I go, I don't know. I think maybe that's a trans woman, but I don't know. Maybe I'm out, out of left field. I think left field is where you're supposed to be then because okay. I, I don't know anything about sports. So go to left field. <laughs> <laughs> The thing with Michael Jackson is, and this is controversial for me, a white woman to say, but I think he was spending his life turning himself into a white woman. And Uh that it circles back to kind of the whiz in the sense of the, the message of racism. And even Michael Jackson, who is an exalted black icon, still suffers that racism. And, and whether it's someone not giving him what he wants or the way he looks at himself, I think the focus probably because he was so othered for being black that a lot of his change was perceived as him trying to get rid of his blackness. But I think you're right. Maybe it was more about him just trying to be what is the safest thing you can be almost other than a straight, white, rich man is a white woman in America, especially at that time. So would he have even thought, I want to become a trans woman and, and pursued it just as a black femme? We don't know. We don't but know. I definitely yeah. think, in my opinion, it was, especially because as I became aware in myself of my trans identity, that was very much when he was going through all those changes. So I identified it right away as, oh, he's doing what I would like to do, which is make myself into the woman that I want to be. And Unfortunately, that gets mixed up with race 
because of who he was and the, the, the time in history. I think that you articulated that very well. And I think that what we all can agree on is that this is a person that it was beyond the realm of just wanting to uh, look younger or get cosmetic surgery for the traditional reasons that most celebrities get cosmetic surgery. But this person wanted to completely change and alter their identity through what their physical presentation was. So regardless, there's something trans about that. There's obviously something extremely queer about that. And in The Wiz, I think it plays out because you get this sort of pure version of Michael Jackson as far as that presentation hadn't started to complicate the world's response to them. And you see Michael Jackson, and I think we identify, we identify with the Scarecrow as a queer character. There's so much culturally, societally to unpack about so many of the figures in this movie, let alone the content of this movie itself. And shifting gears, but also still speaking to the otherness, something that Parker said about the safety of white women made me think of our earlier conversation with Victor, where we addressed both similarly and in different ways the parallels between Judy Garland's Dorothy versus Diana Ross's Dorothy. And it's, of course, shorthand now in pop culture, a friend of Dorothy. We refer to Judy Garland, this idea that Judy Garland is kind of the benchmark for gay men to identify each other, for queer people, like have this like quilted fabric of gingham, blah, 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 blah. But what's interesting, and I would be very interested in your read on this, Parker, is through the safety of white woman, you never really feel like Dorothy Judy is in danger in her version of Oz. Whereas Diana Ross, in a lot of ways, for the Black experience, for the queer experience, she is us because the second she's thrown to the wolves, she is fighting for her life until she finds her family, until she finds herself. And that's like the journey of the movie. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts on all of that are. The thing with The Wizard of Oz is when Judy Garland is singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow, it's a beautiful song. It's iconic and just sort of part of our brain chemistry now. Everybody has it in there. But really, that's about Judy Garland. Mm -hmm. That's about us enjoying her and feeling Judy's moment. And then the term friend of Dorothy became a term not because of Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, but because of Judy Garland was a friend to the gays. So it was really about Judy Garland in The Wizard of Oz for I think a lot of queer people that identify with that movie and love it, myself included. But in The Wiz, it is about when Dorothy is singing, Diana Ross is singing. It's not about Diana Ross, even though she at this point is a queer icon. It is about that hurt that she feels that she doesn't belong here. And the other funny thing about that is in The Wizard of Oz, it's black and white. Until she gets to Oz, it's not in color. In The Wiz, you don't have to keep it black and white to show it sucks here. Because even in this film, they're in a more affluent part of the city for Black inhabitants. You see, as the movie goes on, Dorothy's walking through these dilapidated communities because that's what was going on. So they didn't have to put it in black and white in the beginning to make it different because for people of color, the world is already black and white. That, I think, is why you can identify more as a queer person with Diana Ross in The Wiz as Dorothy, then you identify with just Judy Garland being fabulous Judy Garland. I think we can all agree that the 1939 Wizard of Oz was definitely more geared towards children. You know, it was a safer 
experience. Although I will say that the Margaret Hamilton's The Witch is fucking terrifying. And you know, those those winged monkeys are terrifying. But that's the that's the scary aspect of The Wizard of Oz. It is the witch, it's her castle, it's the monkeys. The difference for Diana Ross is she's navigating danger and scariness throughout the entire thing. And she has to find the fabulous amongst the graffiti, amongst the trash, amongst the, you know, she has to find, and the fabulousness literally climbs down off the walls and, yeah. you know, off the scarecrow pole. And, you know, I think that is so much more queer and it's it's less about a fantasy and more about saying in our reality, we can find beauty. We can stop and smell the roses. It's not until she gets to the Emerald City, you know, to the Twin Towers, that things are actually more just fabulous, right? You know, whereas in the 1939 film, the minute she comes out the door of that house, everything is hyper fabulous. I think that that is a huge difference. But not scary. It's right. Like, right. As you You're said, right. it's only the witch. Yes. The whiz is scary. It's yes. dark the whole way through, even the children. One of the things I love is when Miss One, who is Glinda the Good Witch, essentially, Miss One arrives and she's thanking Dorothy for killing ever mean and she takes this moment to say now we can all get back to running our business but then she looks at all the children and she keeps saying let's keep running our business we can run out there's something like sinister to it in a way that like what's happening what is their business that doesn't exist necessarily in the wizard of oz so right even from these characters that are supposed to be these innocent children there is a a mischievousness to this film that i i love but I do think it is important to note, because Peach has mentioned that The Wizard of Oz, of course, is geared more towards children. And you mentioned that The Wiz is scary, and it is. But in 1978, this movie was still rated G. And, I mean, of course, the fact is the PG-13 rating didn't exist yet. The ratings scale was a little different. But if you're thinking of this movie from the experience of a community that is othered, however you choose to apply that meaning to the film. G, for general audiences, if you are an othered community, this is your general experience living in the world, living in the late 70s. So it, of course, would be scarier. Or maybe I'm wrong. So you're absolutely right. I think especially, again, for the audience that this was intended for, and I don't mean adults versus children, this is a movie that is talking about racism and the Black experience with the absence of white people. How fucking revolutionary and like insanely on another level is that, that they made this movie, which is just speaking to the black experience. You can be a white person and see it in there, but if you're black, you felt it. For instance, when Dorothy tries to grab the taxi, all through the film, those taxis, as soon as Dorothy comes waving, off duty off duty. So just the little things like that. And if you're white, maybe you don't see that. And you just think, oh, look at that funny bubble taxi cab. But when you are a black child, me being the child of a black man, I am white. I'm not biracial, but I grew up adjacent to my father's experience. It wasn't my experience, of course, but I watched many times my father, because he drove a nice car. We were pulled over and my father would be taken out of the car and, you know, frisked and asked 
question, where'd you get that little white boy? You know, like as if black men are running around stealing little white boys. So I watched horrible racism just everywhere around me. So for me as a child watching that movie, it was all the people I knew, you know, Annie M was my grandmother. Those were my aunts, those were my sisters. And so all the hardships that Dorothy's facing as she's going through Oz, they, they weren't scary to me as much as, especially like even the subway. I'd been in the subway, I'd lived in the subway and the subway was scary as a kid. So to watch like the poles come alive in the trash cans, it sort of like was funny in a sense because it was speaking to all these fears that I had as a kid, like, oh, I'm scared to be here. So I think the film can be dark, but I think, again, the message, because this is a film, not just to reflect the experience of Black people, but to uplift Black people, to show, and we see that especially at the end, which we'll get to, I guess, later when we talk a little bit more, but when we get to Eveline's sweatshop, we really see this idea of what I think is the best part of the film, which is you are not what the community makes you at one point when Dorothy meets the scarecrow and he's feeling very like, he says, oh, I'm stupid. I'm stupid. And she says, you're not stupid. You are just a victim of a systematic negativity. And as queer people, that speaks to me. It spoke to me as a child because I saw the racism that my family experienced when I became queer identifying as a teenager. It spoke to me when I identified as trans. I circled back and the film had a whole new meaning. Still the same, but yeah, followed me through my life in this way that continues. You ask this question often on your podcast, does this film hold up, right? Like in time. I feel like this film holds up 100%. You did an episode on the stuff. Uh We talked about Chocolate Chip Charlie and how that was Cohen's way of sort of making a subversive comment on racism. There's no subversive comment here. It's all right there on the table and it's talking about racism but it's inspiring the black community and and i think that that is again what's tremendous about this film it can be scary and it can deal with racism but it's so uplifting for black people and others anyone who feels othered myself being queer myself being trans even being a filmmaker, I don't make big budget films. I make tiny little documentaries about queer history that nobody's heard of. So, you know, I feel other in that sense, even in the world of filmmakers, I'm, I'm other because I'm not making Netflix documentaries, you know, but, but that's what I want to do. And I have found a wonderful comfortability in other, and this film is a great example of that, of Dorothy finding she's ready to go home and start her own life now not just go back to her family but start her own life and and face all that stuff that she has to go out and face in the world as a person who in my opinion is queer <laughs> well there i mean you okay you just said so much that uh, i'm sorry no 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 and when i say said so much i mean like in the in the deepest sense of yeah. not, not not your actual word count but like you said a lot and it's like my brain is racing first of all i am embarrassed to admit because i know a lot about uh racism but because i am white I don't necessarily connect the dots in a way. I know that black people have a harder time getting taxi cabs or hailing cabs. I know that story. I've seen it firsthand with friends. Um, But because it's not my lived day-to-day experience, it wasn't until you 
brought that up that I, I I did not recognize that's what was going on in the whiz. And of course it is. Yeah. I mean, it makes so much sense that that's the function of those weird taxi cabs. And she does try to get help from those cabs. And oh my God, mind blown, that simple little nugget <laughs> of going, oh, right. Like that was something people identified with in a different way if you were black or if you had a black father and you saw your father try to hail taxi cabs. That makes total sense. The other things that you brought up so much, I want to dive into the Eveline of it all because I think, one, I brought this up with our interview with Victor, my maybe only serious criticism of the film is that she's not in it more. I really like that Margaret Hamilton is more of a part of the story throughout because I think we're all fans of witches here and we like we like fabulous villains i mean hello we're queer you know and she is a fabulous fabulous villain but the thing that i was connecting with as you were talking was as a trans woman watching the sweatshop sequence i mean they literally removed their shackles you know i mean mm-hmm. did that speak to you you know in your trans experience Initially, no. Again, as a child, uh-huh. how did I see it? I saw these are very mammy type of characters. These mm-hmm. outfits that they have on, they're very pickaninny. You know, it's very like, and the way that they're moving, the dance gestures, it's very minstrel. Yeah. Right. And so when they unzip this outfit, these gorgeous black people come out. Gorgeous black men, gorgeous black women, and they are Afrocentric. So they've shed this. And so to me, what it always represented was this idea that my father, my grandmother, my family is not what society tells them. It's mm. not what, what all these stigmas and these stereotypes that white society is putting on them, that they are underneath those evil stereotypes, the most beautiful people. So that was the initial reaction I always got to the sweatshop scene. So even now it gets me a little like, um, because it really represents something beautiful. That being said, I love Eveline. Yeah. <laughs> She's probably the first villain that I ever knew and ever loved and, and had that amazing song. I was a child actor and, you know, I'd go on auditions. And I'm sure I was the only little white boy when they'd say, sing a song for us. And I'd start singing. (laughs) Amazing. Um, But I loved that whole moment. I was in love with that scene in the movie. Like you said, I wish there were more of them, but that one was enough. Again, as I revisit this film through my life, as I sort of go along my journey and as I find myself, yes, eventually there was this oh my God, that's like me becoming who I want to be, which is everybody in this film, everybody. The children are becoming who they want to be when they get off the wall and they get back to playing. You know, Miss One is being who she wants to be, running her number. And Lena Horne is the mother of it all. Mm, Right. And at the end, she gives that message, you can be anything you want to be. And that's what's beautiful about you. So as a trans woman, Especially the the Lena Horn segment is what mm. made me feel like, yeah, I can be anything I want. As we all agree, we all love Eveline. She's a great villain. But in that answer, you really unpacked why we only get the one scene with her. Because ultimately, throughout this conversation, we keep returning to the ideas of 
of the parallels between The Wizard of Oz and The Wiz, which of course is natural in a conversation about this movie. It's the difference in experience. It's the difference in life. And Dorothy, Judy, her challenge in Oz is the witch. Diana, as Dorothy in The Wiz, her challenge in Oz is herself. And so that's why we don't really need the witch until the end. And that's why every time she goes somewhere, there is a moment where there is an evolution. We see people becoming themselves in the wake of Dorothy finding herself. Even the thing with the, the, the taxi cab that I realized as Peaches was talking about her own revelation about it, think about all the times that Dorothy hails the cab and it goes away. And then when she gets the line, the last piece of the family, they don't need the cabs anymore. They walk past them. And that's amazing. You know, these yeah. ideas like these pieces. That's wonderful coming together and i think that like yeah could i do like four more numbers with mabel king yes please as someone (laughs) who just wants more of that yeah but narratively leading right from her to the evolution to dorothy has found herself she has faced her challenge and then to have lena horn just kind of underscore that by being like yes this was what this was about it's sort of like i don't even know if i have a question i'm just like i'm having my epiphanal (laughs) moment right here on the air we're experiencing multiple epiphanies in the multiverse of oz and uh you know between the 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 39 oz and the uh the whiz oz and everything you're saying michael i'm right there with you and one thing that michael and i both really saw upon reviewing this film at this time i mean we both agreed the movie really holds up in so many ways thematically but also as a movie as a filmic piece of cinema the fact that they shot on all those practical sets in new york unreal amazing incredible and also really it, it contributes to the the grit that we're talking about if they had done those sets on sound stages and built them to look like theater it wouldn't have worked nearly as well as shooting in the practical locations of new york city but aside from that, the thing that really blew my mind, and we, we talked about this some with Victor, was the difference between the wizard in 1939 bestowing the wisdom on the team versus Dorothy realizing it herself and giving Richard Pryor and the lion and the scarecrow, uh, the Ten Man, the gift of that wisdom, that that knowledge that she had her own epiphany and she was able to come to the conclusion. And I mean, I don't have a question either other than, wow, you know, <laughs> just, just all of these things. They're spectacularly important. And when you watch the movie, you're just wildly entertained by it because it's fabulous. But the levels, what a unique experience, Parker, to be a queer white person who gets to grow up in a a family who has a different experience because of their being Black. And I can only imagine the layers upon layers in which this has made your experience unique. You could do a whole series on that, you know. I mean, my God, it's fascinating. Even though, again, I grew up sort of looking at it through a very black perspective it took me years to realize that the emerald city was the vogue culture that that was the ballroom vogue culture right there and and especially too when i watched it the other day i'm like oh my god yeah look at all those queens yeah and again you said you know it's great that they did it here in new york had you filmed that in california you would have had to bring all of these fabulous ballroom people out to LA, which probably wouldn't have happened. But because it was filmed here, 
you did get so many wonderful African-American entertainers that were in this film in every aspect, never would have been able to achieve that true art if it had been done on a soundstage in Hollywood. The other thing that's popping to mind, and because you're a documentarian, and because you're a New Yorker, and because you have all the experience that you have, and we're talking about The Wiz, I remember very specifically when Paris is Burning was released, and I went to see Paris is Burning at the Annapolis Mall, and I snuck in to see it. For a while, it was only playing in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. And so me as a kid growing up in Maryland, it was very hard for me to get to Georgetown to secretly watch a movie. But as it became more and more successful, and it was a big indie hit, it did open on more screens, and it did play at the Annapolis Mall of all places, and I felt like a dirty old man sneaking in to see that movie. I bought a ticket to something else, but I knew what it meant for me as a high school student in a Catholic school. I knew what it meant. It meant saying to the world, I am queer, and I need to see this movie. From the outside, Paris is Burning, and I remember this very specifically, was presented to the mainstream public as a tragic look at this bizarre underground world because of the way it ends. So if you if you know Paris is Burning, you know that we lose one of the subjects, you know, to murder. You know, it's a horrible reality at the end. But as queer people who already dealt with bullying and horrible situations, I saw that film and I saw hope in that movie. I saw a family in that movie. I saw togetherness and community that I wasn't finding in my safe white space. And I needed that. I needed to see Paris is Burning. And I wonder if The Wiz functions in a similar way where, you know, if you grow up Black and you see The Wiz, your view of it is inherently going to be different than my view of it. And and, and I don't know that I'm articulating it completely, but it's that thing where the hope is there. The garbage of the movie, the scary stuff in the movie, because it's your day-to-day life, it doesn't affect you the way it does an outsider. And, you know, I don't know, I'm making this weird connection between Paris is Burning and The Wiz, but I feel like there's something there. It's me in the middle. Yeah, I, yes, exactly. No, the, the real world is scary, and that is what The Wiz represents. Because yeah. in The Wizard of Oz, it's a very different world than Dorothy comes from. Number one, because it's in color, right? That just makes it completely different. Again, they didn't have to change the color in The Wiz to change the feeling and to make you understand you're in a different place but it's the same as the world you're growing up in with racism it's the same as the world you're growing up with with poverty for me that was definitely a big message we were very poor growing up so for me her roaming through those dilapidated buildings were very reminiscent of my community so paris is burning is sort of that next level for me, because I remember being at the video store, those existed ones where you went and you rented a video and you brought it home and you watched it and you had to bring it back to them. And I remember seeing Paris is Burning, that box cover on the shelf and seeing Octavia, I think, you know, on the cover and seeing my future. Not a sad story because I didn't know how the rest of the world was perceiving it, but I knew how I perceived it when I saw that gorgeous probably one of the most gorgeous women I've ever seen in my life till yeah. this day, other than Iman, who is in this movie, by the way. She's uh, in the Emerald she City. She's just a, she's just an extra. I forgot but, about uh, that. So, yeah, she's, that crazy? That, that's an Easter egg, yeah. But the cover of that movie, Rental, all those women, the queer people, it was like a beacon to me. So I think in a way, yeah, I can make the relation for you that 
for me, The Wiz was my first step into like a niceness of, okay, I could be anybody I want. And then Paris is burning being like, okay, but it's going to be hard. Right. Yeah. Just like it is for Dorothy. It's going to be hard. I like what you said about seeing the cover of Paris is Burning and thinking to yourself, this is my future and equating the journey of the Wiz to that. One thing that we have not discussed at all with either of our guests. Well, I mean, we're about to discuss it with you, but Peaches and I haven't (laughs) discussed it uh, with each other or with our, our other guest is when Dorothy comes back home at the end of the movie. What do you think is next for her? Or does it matter? Because we know at the beginning of the movie, her aunt is like, you need to go beyond 125th Street. In a way, she does. But then does she stay? Does she go? Does it matter? Is the journey the important thing? What do you think? I've never actually thought about that before. In The Wizard of Oz, the Scarecrow, the Lion, and the Tin Man exist in Dorothy's home life. So when she leaves Oz, She's going to see them again. Oh, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there. So I assume she stays because these people that she already knew as her family, and then she went off to have this ethereal experience with these people and then come back to them. In my heart, Dorothy stayed right there on the farm. I never thought about it, but I don't think that's what Dorothy in The Wiz would have done. I'm going to hope she did what my aunts and my sisters did, which was fight you know, fight against those social stereotypes that black women are constantly bashing their fucking head against. Yeah. Even now, you know, with people giving shit to Angela Bassett for not overflowing yeah. with joy that somebody else won an award, that's about her as a black woman not taking her place. And it yeah. pisses me off to, like, see it and everybody's talking to I'm like, you're talking about the wrong people you need to be talking about your unconscious bias right now oh my god i'm so glad you brought that up because it's a moment we're living in right now and by the time this episode comes out because michael and i are actually for once in our lives ahead of the game so by the time this comes (laughs) out it'll be a a bit away from the academy awards but we're living in the moment right now we're we're talking to parker mere days two days after the um, oscars and i'm so glad that you brought up the angela bassett situation because it is so fueled in so many ways with racism it's expecting her to uphold the lie the racist lie that she shouldn't feel a certain way and i thought her reaction i didn't think it was rude i didn't think it was anti jamie lee curtis i thought it was a natural reaction to the situation and Yes, they're actors, but that's a real moment. You know, why, why should she be expected to jump up and and cheer for Jamie Lee Curtis when it's not about Jamie Lee Curtis? That's the whole point is it's about Angela Bassett being looked oh. over again, you know, after. And, well, and let's face it, Jamie Lee Curtis won for the same reason that Angela Bassett should have won. Jamie Lee Curtis won for a body of work. You know, we know that. It was not for everything, everywhere, all at once. And Angela Bassett should have won for the same reason. This is the way the Academy plays the game. And so at the end of the day, it is fucked up that we are pissed or that someone's pissed at Angela Bassett for not responding the way they want them to, to make them feel more comfortable. So that is a great thing to point out. And that is the type of bullshit that this character of Dorothy would have to come back to, right? When she comes back to the real world, she may know herself, but she's, Still got an uphill battle. So my wish for Dorothy is that, yeah, she did what my family did, which is fight against those stereotypes and find your dream, get an education, become in control of your own life, which for many people of color was not the case in the 70s, especially 
again, for black men, it was very much not the case. So that's what I'm going to think Dorothy did. That Dorothy became a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Michael's so right about the 125th Street thing and us kind of circling back to the practical sets and setting it in New York City. It isn't that she got sucked up into a tornado and transported to a, a land that's otherworldly. We can recognize that she's in New York City. An right. audience should be able to recognize that, yes, it's a, a fantastic version of New York City. But this journey is about her confronting her fears and walking through her fear and exploring the wider world and leaving the safety of Harlem or her community or her neighborhood and going out there. There's a lot of revelations happening about the whiz today. And um, yeah, Michael, you're right. Like she comes back and it's not about whether or not she needs to stay home or she did the thing. Now she's free to choose. That fear has been lifted because she walked through her fear. You know, yeah. it's different. And and as we're wrapping up, in a way, it almost feels asinine to ask this because we've been talking about the evolution of your viewership with this movie your whole life. But from discovering this film with your family to now, and obviously you have grown with this movie, has your relationship with The Wiz changed at all over the years? I mean, clearly it has, but how how do you think it has? I think it has just become more meaningful, quite honestly. Again, I think it holds up wonderfully in every aspect, as a film, as a statement piece, as a queer identifying film. I think it very much holds up and speaks to us probably even more that we have this wonderful rainbow of queerness now. And especially for me as a trans woman, you have to become as woman as you can, become as passing as you can, so you can fade off into society and nobody will ever know that you were born with a penis. I'm not ashamed that I was born with a penis. My goal isn't to become a woman. My goal is to be me and to be comfortable with myself. And when you can do that, all the bullshit that people give you in the world, as it changes through your life, as you grow and as you get a new job and you lose a partner and you get a new kind of partner, all of that, this movie speaks to. And so I think anyone, a child, a grown-up, a person who's having a breakdown, a person who just wants to feel great today, there is church in this movie. I come from Southern Baptist where you know, they put the touch the hand on the head and people pass out. So for <laughs> me, this film just brings that to me sometimes when I just want to feel my grandma, who I don't have with me anymore. I, I feel her in this movie. It means so many things to me. It really depends on my mood, but it's always, always fabulous. It's always fun, and it's always love. I feel a lot of love. I can't think of a better way to end this conversation than with all of those sentiments. And I know that I speak for the listening audience when I say we want more Parker Sargent. Yes. And, you know, if you're like me and you just want to know more and follow you, see your movies, listen to your podcast, where can people keep in touch and stay up to date with you? So the podcast is What is Queer, which is at What is Queer on all socials. Uh, for me on social, it's the Parker Sargent. And yeah, you go to my website, parkersargent.com. There are my, some links for my movies there. We've got two movies coming out in film festivals the next few months. One called Roseland, the ballad of Bob Levine, who is 
a 90-year-old drag queen who's been performing in Fire Island since the 1950s. Which I just had the pleasure of getting to see. It's amazing. And and what you're doing is important. You and I discussed that before, but these documentaries are important. This is how these stories are going to live on. So can't wait for the world to see that film. Keep checking us out at What is Queer. Well, we well, can't thank, thank you, you enough. Yes, thank you. Thank you, guys. It was a completely unholy experience. Thank you very much. And that was our fabulous interview with Parker Sargent. I loved all of the context that Parker brought to both her love of this movie, but also the movie itself. Sharing how she grew up in a black household and how that affected the lens through which she watched the film, but then also further explaining her connection to the film through a queer lens, through a trans lens. Yeah. It was really one of those eye-opening Midnight Mass conversations. I could have talked to Parker for another three hours and not felt the time pass at all. Layers. Yes. Layers. That's just the thing with, with these movies is you can't ever really know how it touches someone because for all of us in our relationships, of course, we're a cult because we share something in common, which is a love for these things. But sometimes the reason we love them or the way that we love them or what we connected to most can be different, you know? I think the themes that she brings up are universal. Absolutely. But, I mean, that was really great. And let's face it, we know that her situation's unique. I mean, how many white trans women grew up in a black family like that's a unique situation you know and so I'm just so glad that she got to uh, come on the show and talk about that film and her love of the film and how it connects to her love of her father and her grandmother and you know just fabulous oh my god yeah I think really over the course of both of the conversations we had I just feel further reinforced with my my feelings of love for The Wiz I mean what a truly magical movie that even though entering the conversation, I was like, I have so much to say. Rather than having got it all out, we just talked a lot about it, have so much more to say now because of the brilliant things that both Victor and Parker brought to us. Well, that actually is my favorite part of why we do this podcast, right? Like, I think Michael and I earnestly and nerdily have a love of these films. Like, we're cinema geeks. We're cinephiles, uh, mm -hmm. as they say. And we especially love cult movies. And I think one of the things that uh, Midnight Mass has done for me is sort of, like, given me this opportunity to, like, deepen my love for these movies or find a renewed love or even a new love. And a lot of that has to do with, like, just one, revisiting them, but but maybe more importantly, discussing them with other people who love them. Because like through talking about this movie with Victor and Parker, it's like, I love it even more than when we started and didn't think that that was possible. No, and I also think it's important. A movie like The Wiz truly showcases that what makes up a cult isn't necessarily universal. It's personal, but through that personal connection, we can find the universal commonality to other members of the cult, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so much that we covered on the show. And like you say, Michael, so much still to be enjoyed and discussed. If you have listened to this episode and you haven't yet revisited the film, do yourself the favor and just enjoy it because it's, it's wonderful. And give yourself you know, an entire evening, turn off your shit, like really just like let it 
take over and and fall into the magic that is the whiz. And if you don't love it, then let's face it, you're a mean old lion. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You're Eveline. Okay. Um, you know, but yeah, just, just embrace it and enjoy it. And, you know, if you too are someone out there who's looking for your brain, or maybe it's your heart. Yeah, or your courage. Well, then you too, or maybe it's home. You too might be one of the children of the popcorn now. Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production. <laughs>